Hello and welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Loss's weekly podcast with myself, Galen Sops, and as ever, I'm joined by managing editor Colin Lambert. Uh, Colin, there are quite a few uh, interesting news stories for us to get stuck into this week. Um, one of yours that I wanted to ask you about was about a, a BIS paper that came out um, talking about direct links between liquidity conditions in, in FX and swaps. Um, can you kind of yeah. kick us off to give us kind of an overview of, of what the kind of uh, the thesis or argument was of this paper? Sure. I mean, I have to say it's, it was a really interesting read, and I enjoyed reading it. Um, but then I always enjoy reading things when I start off with a really skeptical attitude, because I can tell you, I mean, I know the, I mean, I know the world has moved on. I, I do accept this, you know, grudgingly, of course. But um, I think beyond potential interest rate moves, I think I rarely, if ever, looked at the what was happening in the swaps market when pricing spot throughout my trading career. And I've spoken to quite a few e-traders about it this week, saying, like, you know, so how do you account for FX swaps, if anything? And most of them come back and said, like, well, we don't, because, you know, it doesn't really matter to spot. What you worry about is last trade, um, you know, like last-minute last trend, um, order books and stuff like that. So I come into it quite skeptically. Um, basically, what it says is, I mean, the, effectively, the, um, the authors or the, the, the researchers found um, a direct link between sort of, they use the spread as a um, proxy for market liquidity. Obviously, a wider spread being uh, less liquid conditions. Now, one caveat on this that they put on it, as well as, um, as, well as noticed by a few people that have commented to me on the report, is that the data uh-huh. they use is quote data, not um, trade data. So okay. there is an element Wait, 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 brother, where, where, where is the, the data for this coming from? It's coming from, uh, I think it's Refinitiv now, Datascope. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it's, it's very much like, it's quote data, so it's quote data that's been submitted, but you don't actually know the circumstances in which the quote was submitted. You know, was it to a last look platform? Um, was it recycled liquidity? Anyway, um, <clears throat> excuse me. What they found was that um, and they use the words highly correlated um, in the spreads in spot and FX swaps, which I was going like, well, I find that really strange because you know, swaps are priced off you know, the interest rate contracts and, and derivatives, um, whereas spot is priced off something totally different. And then it comes to the key part of the, of the paper, is that they study in month-end and quarter-end only. Or specifically, I would say. Now, okay. that changes the dynamic totally because you get funding issues at not necessarily month-end, although you can get month-end. You certainly get funding issues at quarter-end. You always have had since I can remember. And you okay. get funding issues at year-end, as we saw with all the panic up over the repo market in the U.S. Um, over the last month and a half. Oh, sorry, three months, actually. Yeah. So basically what they said was um, – Spreads, when funding pressures come in, there's a spillover to spot because spot spreads widen out. Now, they've got empirical evidence showing all this up. Um, I'm okay with that. I mean, I, I, I certainly wouldn't argue with somebody giving me empirical evidence because the data you know, can really, really lie. I think, though, Wait, that there's, something, there's something you won't thing. argue with, Colin? Well, I will. I'm about to, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always preface my arguments with, you know, well, I never argue with the data, but I'll argue with the thesis behind it, maybe. Um, no, I mean, I, I can see why this could happen, because, for instance, if you take, like, um, quarter-end or year-end, 
Yeah, you've got the MSCI rebalancing. Um, we know that, I mean, I know it's mainly at 4 p.m. And this, and this data is taken hourly over 24 hours. So this is, this is a very good data set here. Um, but we know that there's a terrific skew at quarter end in foreign exchange markets because, you know, the, the sheep, sorry, I mean the asset managers, um, all go <laughs> and hedge their exposures at the same time um, in the same forum and they create a market move. So inevitably, when we know there's going to be a market move, there will be a widening of spreads to a degree. Um, secondly, a lot of the major dealers, and it's interesting, they point out that um, around quarter end, the major dealers pull back from FX swaps market. They don't like quoting it. Um, and I'll come back to it in a second. But obviously, the same thing happens okay. in, the, in the fixes. You get a lot of fixes at month end over the 24-hour period. And due to all the furore over the chat rooms, the major dealers are not heavily involved in the window. They don't trade principally in the window. So their liquidity is kind of reduced. Because you know, if you're a trader, I mean, too many traders I talk to say, like, I won't touch that five-minute window in London at 4 p.m. Because I may trade perfectly innocently, but to a compliance or legal eagle, this could look like I'm front-running an order that I don't even know about. But then I've got to prove that I don't know about the order, which is, you know, it's, it's guilty until proven innocent. So a lot of people yeah. are like, it's just not worth the aggravation. Now, <clears throat> the forwards element of this is the interesting bit, because what they say is, and this is where you get a really impact of regulation, because the... Um, what they're saying is that the, the major banks, the GSIB, so globally systemically important banks, um, I guess probably top 10 banks, maybe top 20, um, they definitely pull back during the quarter ends and month ends because they're doing a thing they call window dressing for their balance sheet. So effectively what they're saying is if they can, with, if they can reduce their exposures over month and quarter end, then the capital or liquidity ratios they have to adhere to are slightly lower because it's, it goes up in buckets. So <clears throat> the direct effect of this regulation is that when it comes to the time when, when the capital and liquidity ratios are measured, which is, funnily enough, month end and quarter end, because we show no imagination whatsoever as an industry, um, <laughs> financial markets, not FX, um, it's month end and quarter end because, again, the sheep, sorry, the asset managers have to do everything at month end and on the same day at the same time because um, they can't have tracking error. Um, we find this real reduction in liquidity and FX swaps, <clears throat> which inevitably creates you know, liquidity conditions. And then, yeah, the paper says that the smaller banks step in and they, the smaller banks with balance sheet step in, but they quote wider. Well, they're going to. You're going to quote wider when, you, when you've got an opportunity to be here, you know, when people get more desperate. So I think it's in, – in, uh, my question is, I think what – or my statement is, I think what they've said is – what they've identified here is a phenomena at month and quarter end. I don't think they've established a market trend or a structural market change here, because to me that's a one. These are one-off aspects that are impacted by what happens, um, you know, with certain market participants, you know, due to regulation and due to the bookkeeping of a, of a, of a significant client base. So I think it's more of a phenomena. I'm not convinced this happens generally in FX markets. I think throughout most of the year, swap prices can do what they like and spot will only move when it's an interest rate um, impact. And to be honest, I'm not even sure of that because this week 
Um, we've had, I think, two Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee members say they'd vote for a cut in rates, which is quite significant, obviously. And then we had really weak UK inflation data. Everything points to the Bank of England cutting rates. Sterling went up. So the spot market is ignoring it, as well, even that. So I think day-to-day I have a real problem with it. And something I pointed out in, in, in the feature was that if you look at what happened in September with the US repo, when you couldn't get a price in um, any FX swap involving the dollar for, you know, for maybe half an hour to an hour, the spot didn't even blink. So I think there's this... Yeah, they've got the phenomena, and again, the phenomena is, you know, if you know there's going to be a funding squeeze at quarter end, why run a position? So, like, your Japanese retail carry traders, they would take, they should take out their carry. They probably all squared up in December, so they didn't have to worry about funding. So, Colin, in, in, for for people who don't listen regularly and people who don't know you, um, I'm about to out you as a true foreign exchange geek right now. So, (laughs) when is that article? You ended that article. Uh, you ended that article saying that, that the, uh, the the BIS report leaves the reader wanting more. Colin, what yes. more would you like to see from the BIS? <clears throat> I would like to see. Yeah, well, you know what it does. It, how, it leaves this reader. How did they whet your appetite for more? <laughs> well, first of all, I would like to see them conduct the same survey at non-call trends and month ends. Um, they've identified a phenomena, so let's have a look at it in terms of um, yeah, what happens over the course of a, of, a regular, of a regular month. It can be a quarter month. I don't mind that. Um, but I think it will be good to – because it's quite a big statement to make. I mean, I think there's, there's, a, couple of, there's a couple of lines in, in the paper that are quite big. Um, and it's like, what is it? So the pricing of spot and FX swaps is intimately linked. And it also says, and these are quotes, price formation in FX swaps depends on price formation in the spot market and vice versa. Absolutely, in FX swaps, you worry about what a spot is because there's a thing called the spot effect. And that is where um, the forward dealers are going like, well, I've got, I've got a net interest effect at the end of this swap yeah, when, we, when we make the payment to reflect the interest rate differentials. And obviously, at the moment, the interest rate differentials aren't huge. But they, they, they are very, very strict on setting the spot so they can edge that. So they don't give away, you know, which can be significant, you know, slippage on, on, on a quite significant interest amount given some of the amounts traded. So absolutely the swaps is linked to spot. But to go back to my first point, I don't know many people that look at the forwards when they're quoting spot unless it's in a Canada cross course because Canada is traded one day of maturity, whereas the others are traded two. So I, 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 I don't see that happening. Um, and particularly, this paper was written about euro, dollar, and dollar yen. I certainly don't see it happening there. So, yeah, what I'd like to see more, I'd like to see, I'd like to see the um, how this happens in maybe less liquid markets. I'd like to see how it happened. I'd like to see a study on it, how, you know, what it is maybe more generally, not looking at that phenomena of month and quarter ends. And someone actually pointed out to me um, as well. It would be interesting to look at what happens in the options market as well. Um, especially around month and quarter end, because obviously a lot of people use the options market for hedging. Um, is there any impact in the options market as well? So just broaden out the original survey, I think, is me. So, yes, I am an absolute geek. <laughs> I am outed. <laughs> I read this stuff, mate. I, I, I don't know why, but I read this stuff and I go, and I just enjoy reading it. I, you know. 
I don't have trouble sleeping at night. What can I say? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's move on from my geekiness to let's move to proper geek stuff. Um, Blockchain. Yeah. You you run a report this week of Symbian's um, blockchain solution. So yeah, yeah. First of all, run us through it, and then we'll see if I can pick your I can I can pick your uh, your, your argument apart. <laughs> uh, okay, cool. So basically, uh, listeners may have seen, and, and Colin, you you talked about this because at the back end of last year, there was like a a flurry of of peer to peer. Uh, buy side FX kind of articles coming out. Um, you kind of talked about the notion in your uh, in your column, and then we discussed it on the podcast. Uh, and there was there was one story kind of doing the round about how Vanguard was uh, looking to build a peer to peer for like currency trading network. Now the article itself didn't really have the article that was doing the rounds. I think it was Bloomberg didn't really have any details. It literally just said yeah. that that Vanguard is looking at building out a currency trading platform using blockchain. Um, you know, yeah. Vanguard declined to comment. Everyone declined to comment. Um, but so profit and loss got the scoop. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, I'm saying everybody, everybody kind of uh, – I think eventually actually Symbian put out a, a, a release saying that they were working with Vanguard. But I think we're probably yep. the, the first to go in-depth and really kind of take a look at this. Um, so, so yep. Symbian is the, the blockchain firm that is kind of building the technology that Vanguard is, is kind of partnering with and working with for this network. Um, now, the, the interesting thing about Symbian is they actually deliberately avoided the FX market for some time um, because they just didn't think the blockchain was, salu- was suited to FX. Um, but when they were originally thinking that, they were thinking about the spot market, right? They were like, they were like blockchain. It's 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 an ill fit. It's not quick enough. There's not really. It doesn't solve any of the problems that exist in the spot FX market. It's not applicable here. Um, but what they the way they look at the technology is that they saw what happened with Bitcoin, and they were excited not about Bitcoin but about the technology because they saw that blockchain that they felt could be used to custody things. And so they started thinking, well, can it custody something other than a Bitcoin? Um, and their answer was yes. And so that's why, you know, at first they, you know, they were, they were looking at other areas of the market and, and not FX, but focusing on this like, custodying of, of assets. Now, how they got into FX was because they realized with conversations they were having with market participants who were coming to them with this problem, um, that they argued that there's actually a, a collateral problem in FX, not in spot FX, obviously, but in kind of non-spot products. Um, and the, they, are, they believe that kind of the blockchain technology can be used to solve this collateral problem. Um, and, and that's kind of the, the crux of it. Um, obviously, they've got now Joe Ziccarelli, who used to be at CLS, is heading up their kind of thick sales and strategy there. Um, so mm-hmm. he's quoted in the article as kind of, he talks about some of the, the collateral problems, right? Um, talking about how, you know, and he saw this when he was at CLS, right? Uh, he talks about, obviously, you know, CLS does a great uh, job of, of settlement in FX, but he would have all these calls with people asking about the collateral problem, you know, because to manage collateral today, there has to be a calculation agent involved. There has to be some agreement between the counterparties about the value of the collateral. You know, that process takes a while to sort out. Then once a transaction expires, how do people get collateral returns to them um, in a timely manner? You know, this process currently takes 
you know, quite a while, and it represents a credit risk. It's chewing up capital and balance sheet, and there's lots of inefficiencies there. By contrast, right, what they're using this technology for is the basic, like through the kind of the smart contracts they use, the collateral calculations are done, and then that that collateral is automatically moved around on this blockchain network to different areas. So basically, when counterparty credit risk is more of a concern or or credit limits are being stressed. Um, they can that collateral can move around quicker than it can on the current system, so that you don't have to, you know, worry about okay, that that's the counterparty risk. Oh, I'm exposed here because the collateral is moving around automatically in not real time, but let's say hourly. Mm. Um, and then in theory, what this does is allows either you know either I want to trade in greater size with you, but my you know my credit and risk team is just like no, you can't do that, or in theory, it allows me to face off with counterparties that I couldn't necessarily face off with otherwise because, you know, it's either not PB or it's, um, or, you know, just I can't get it through the, the credit team. But this, by having that kind of collateral network with everything moving yeah. around, alleviates that concern. That's, that's kind of uh, their pitch. They're also very big on, the, on emphasizing that, that they're partnering with people in the market. So basically, you know, they're like, people came to us with this problem. We didn't go looking for it. Yeah. Um, and so they're saying, you know, we're bringing the technology and then we're partnering with people to bring the expertise, right? So obviously they're, they're working with a few other firms that Vanguard's kind of their, their big kind of flagship person. Yeah. So kind of, it, it, from the sounds of things, they're very much leaning on Vanguard to, to provide the kind of the asset class specific expertise and then kind of show them the problem. They're also relying on Vanguard being such a big firm that it, they kind of drag people with them towards this. You know, they, they talk mm-hmm. about the, the network effect and, you know, if, you know, if Vanguard comes, oh, suddenly everyone's looking at it. You know, as you said, just the fact that, that Vanguard was looking at this created a bunch of headlines and got people talking about it. Yeah. So I think they're, they're kind of relying on that. So that's the, that's the kind of... So they're relying, upon asset, they're relying upon asset managers being sheep. Who'd have thought? Exactly. I mean, it's actually not a bad strategy. Exactly. So, okay, a couple of questions then. I mean, obviously, I totally get the uh, the concept, and, and it seems so simple. We wonder why it hasn't been done before, but I know blockchain is still relatively in its infancy. Um, what does this mean for, like, for instance, prime brokers? Because we've been talking about prime brokers trying to get into that asset manager space. And I don't think they've done a great job of getting in there because I don't think the demand's there. Is this going to sort of be an alternate or would this be something that will sit alongside your sort of PB custody business, your know, traditional businesses offered by the banks? So I think the reality is um, that, that – PB is not going anywhere, and even even if you wanted to use this, because as you say, it's such a new technology. No one, if you've got, even if you're an asset manager and you do happen to use a PB, or you decide to post your MR use a PB, I don't think anyone's going to suddenly swing all their business towards this. This is going no, to no, be no. It's it's going to be a kind of a toe in the water thing. You know, people will start to put a few trades, like assuming it does build the critical mass. You know, people will start to put a, yeah. a few trades in. You know. And also, it depends. You know, we've talked about kind of the, the peer-to-peer matching um, dream before, right? I mean, even if you solve the, the counterparty thing, you still got 
okay, well, will they actually find people to match up with enough of the time? Yeah. And I, and uh, I think, I mean, to me, that still remains the big problem. You know, even, even assuming that I'm on this network and it's all great, we've got, you know, let's just say uh, it builds the scale of like, I don't know, 15 large asset managers, right? And we're all sitting on this network. The collateral moves around like a dream. I can trade now with whoever I want. Yeah. Happy days. Um, am I? Am I? Am I seeing enough of like a, a reduction, or am I seeing the efficiencies gained from how much I'm able to match off, really mm-hmm. being so significant that it justifies kind of you know. The, the technology and going through this, you know, this process onboarding and looking at it and getting it through various committees and sign off, et cetera. That, that's, I think, yeah, I mean, one of the big questions here. Yeah, because, I mean, I think there's a significant cost involved for the firms in doing this. I, know, I mean, I know the technology, generally speaking, is cheaper. And once it's established, it's a lot cheaper to run and to maintain. And there is that sort of business security, which would probably lower the regulatory burden um, on the firms. But I still think it's that you look at it and go, at the moment, if you're looking at, you know, say, FX swaps, for as an example, um, you're probably getting very close to choice pricing in the regular tenors, you know, after three months maybe. Um, and, and most of the business is done under one month. I think we, you know, one month and under. Um, you're getting very close to choice pricing now. So I assume they're looking to be able to trade mid with the peer-to-peer. You kind of look at it and go, well, is actually the benefit of, you know, are you actually getting the benefit of trading at mid? Is it significant enough and often enough to be able to sustain the cost of what we, uh, of what it's going to cost to maintain this collateral, maintain this system? Um, because I still think it's one of those things you look at and go, like, well, yeah, you could be sitting there waiting for a match for three hours, and in that time, the market could move against you by one pip. Which, if you're talking, you know, half the, you know, if you're talking half a trillion, um, uh, sorry, half a half a billion dollars, which you can easily be doing in swaps, that's quite significant. I've heard, you know, a pip on five hundred million <laughs> might be might cost you quite a little bit. So, yeah, I, I, it's a really interesting idea, and I, I like the technology behind it. Um, I wonder whether, whether again, and this is something a regular theme in our cast to a degree. I wonder if what we're seeing here is the first step. And that the idea will be taken up and used elsewhere, maybe by an existing infrastructure provider. Yeah, so to I, make I definitely their process think, is a bit better. Yeah, so I, I definitely think that um, that this collateral problem is. You know, we, we've talked before about you know people endlessly searching for you know things to apply blockchain to. I do think this yeah. is one where there's actually a, a genuine use case here, and actually. It's a good application of the technology to be able yeah. to to basically move collateral around much more seamlessly than the current yeah. system allows. Um, and, yeah. so, and, I, and I do think, regardless, you know, once once things like UMR come in and suddenly everyone has to post a whole load more collateral around, um, having some kind of system like this would be beneficial. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I would totally agree. And, and the fact is, the more solutions like this we have, the better it is to meet the challenges of the, you know, the, the impending regulation and, frankly, the changing market structure. Because I think it's, you know, the, things are going to continue to change. Um, you know, if you, if you roll back to that BIS paper, the fact is, you know, a few years ago, there weren't, it wasn't, I mean, yeah, maybe year-end, you heard, there was always a year-end issue. 
But there wasn't really issues involving liquidity at month's end. Um, it may be been a small adjustment. Uh, these things, you know, things as a technology, as people analyze markets better, as people sort of more conform more to what they think is the norm, and we get more of this sort of, you know, like passive um, approach to markets generally, you're going to need different solutions. And, yeah, all power to them, I would say. Um, I still think the challenge is going to be getting someone to actually make them a price. But there we go. Let's move on. So, so um, while you're agreeing with me, let's move yeah. on because there was um, a, a wonderful, wonderful, if I do say so myself, article uh, that we published this week about uh, how full amount trading spiked on CBOE FX last year. I didn't see did you. Did you did you happen to catch that, Colin? No, I don't. I don't. I don't I'm not sure I did actually. I, I must have missed that one. Are you sure it actually happened? I'm. I'm not sure. And, and, yeah, because and at the end of the article, there's actually um, if you want to if you want to find it at the end of the article, there's actually a link to um, uh, some predictions that we made at the beginning of last year. Mm. And uh, my last one was actually about uh, full amount trading increasing. And on the podcast the other week, you tried to to rubbish the idea that uh, that full amount trading had increased. But uh, I mean, obviously, you know, we can't necessarily extrapolate this and 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 say it's true everywhere, but. Uh, it's certainly indicative that I was right. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, actually, I think it was last week on this podcast that I was criticised and accused of impropriety over the fact that um, there was an article appeared that indicated that an anonymous pair of socks had won, which you revealed to the audience were mine, which I never did. Um, is it equally the fact that you just really focus on writing stories that prove your predictions right? No, I don't think I mean, that's this, true at all. This is happening too often. I mean, no, I, let, let's I just write a couple of things on this. <laughs> Indeed. A couple of things I would say on it. Um, yes, absolutely, you're right. And and I think I said when we were doing the predictions that I think that's a bit of a tap-in because it was definitely a, um, it was definitely a trend that was already, already happening. Um, it's happened from a low base. I think we need to recognize that. Um, but it's still, you know, they've still doubled the amount of, of really yeah, and, full and, amount trading. And I think that helped CBOE actually maintain a competitive position in what was a tough year for platforms. This model, I think, yeah. really helped the platform. Yeah, so, so I would say um, a couple of things. So, first of all, it, it, they actually, CBOE are now publishing a more granular uh, liquidity yeah. statistics, which I think personally is a sign of a platform that's, that's confident in its in the data. Because let's be honest, right? People people publish the data that they think is going to make them look good, right? That's just that's yeah. why no one publishes their volumes until they get to a certain size, right? And then yeah. they make a statement. They say, "This is how big we are. This is how much liquidity we've got," right? Um, I mean, they could have yeah. done that all the time, but they choose not to. So, like, I think the fact that they're, they're publishing. Um, statistics on kind of you know uh, yeah. on you know non-firm fill rates and things like that shows that they're that they're confident that people are going to like what they see in those statistics. Yes, but what I will also say though, in their defence, um, is that the firm trading and full amount trading are both fairly new ventures for CBOE. So therefore, you know, they couldn't have published this stuff in 2017. They didn't have it. True. True. So um, I think there's a, there's I, mean, but, but, I, I think it's, it's interesting. My point was meant as a positive, not a negative. Oh yeah, so yeah. Oh no, absolutely, yeah. Um, but I think 
The thing that struck me as well was the, the non-firm fuel rates were consistently above 85% throughout the year. Um, I kind of have a problem with that. Yeah. Because I, I, I mean, that's to me, you're, you're now talking a 15% reject rate on non-firm stuff. I know there's going to be reject rates for, for reasons here and there, but... Um, and it depends on the makeup of the client base that's using the the uh, the liquidity. I, I get that. So, so I can't make this a, like a firm statement. But I just my my problem is I look at it and think I would prefer to see my non-firm fuel rates around ninety-five percent. I think that okay. the, that then basically turns around and says, you know what, generally speaking, what I think we've got here is LPs behaving well and um, LCs, liquidity consumers, behaving well. What that tells me is there's still the odd problem on the platform between certain LPs and certain clients where, you know, one is either, you know, they reject um, thresholds are way too tight from the LP or you've got clients machine gunning and they're quite rightly being rejected. That's the only thing I would say now. I mean, 85% is good. And you're, you're absolutely right. They're publishing data that nobody else is, so we can't compare it to anybody else. 85% could be very, very good um, compared to, say, an FXL, 360T, Current X, um, you know, whoever um, is out there um, streaming non-firm liquidity. We don't know. But if you ask me, um, I would generally like to see that around 95%. But well done, Galen. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. It's another one you've got right. Can we move on? <laughs> move on to things we learned this week. Um, actually, to talk about people machine gunning and market behaviour around full amount, um, we probably shouldn't let the podcast go by without noting that the FX Global Code had its 1,000th signatory this week. Um, oh, it did? Who was it? It did. Um, it was Rafiton Bank International. So with all due disrespect to Rafiton Bank, I think that's a little bit underwhelming, isn't it? Um, particularly as, I mean, I'll get, I'll get, you, won't, you won't get this, but number 999 was the People's Bank of China. There would have been some symbolism in now, I think. The 1,000th statement of commitment registered being from you know, the growing concern, which is China. Um, but notwithstanding that, obviously there's a couple of things we have to sort of put into this. Um, I think there's, I think it's one, I think it might be Mizuho Bank in Japan. They nearly have a page of their own on the register of statements and commitments because they've got so many registered with different names and different um, repositories. So there's, uh, no way there's, okay. a thousand, there's, there's no way there's a thousand firms have signed up for this. There's a thousand statement of commitments. I reckon... There's somewhere between 550 and 600 individual firms have signed them. Can't really argue with that. That's not bad at all. And I reckon it's between 70 and 80 buy-side firms. And interestingly, I had a quick flick through. There's been like 11 asset types um, yeah. and a couple of corporate treasuries sign up in the last sort of three months. Since the global FXC said, actually, we're going, to, we're going to start calling people and saying, why are you not signing? You know, calling the CEOs of the firm and saying, like, why have you not signed up to be a good market citizen? So it was quite interesting that you know, they're getting some traction there. Um, talking about market behavior and full amount of trading and rejects and so on, though, um, I went through the, uh, the register the other week um, because 
because I'm a geek, as we've already established. Um, I'm really struggling. I'm really struggling to find hedge funds on there. I mean, Campbell and Company have signed a statement of commitment, um, and they're obviously they're in the CTA space. There's a couple of others that maybe sort of straddle that asset manager stroke hedge fund space. But if you look at the big hedge funds, you know, the big macro hedge funds that we've all known and heard about over the years, none of them have signed a statement of commitment. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the asset manager thing is coming on. There's more to be done, definitely more to be done there. And I think, you know, that's the again there. But I kind of get to the impression this is a low-hanging fruit now getting exhausted. And, um, I, you know, the cynics amongst us, and I could never possibly put myself in that, Galen, but the cynics amongst us might um, suggest that it might have something to do with these macro hedge funds execution styles. Um, not being quite as um, compliant with the guidelines of the Global Code as we might hope. I think that was diplomatic enough. Um, that was you know, diplomatic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, the, the the more blunt people might say they're just snipers, machine gunners, and abusing liquidity for their front and centre, but I couldn't possibly say that. Um, <laughs> anyway, so that, so that happened this week. Um, what did you notice this week? Um, I know. Well, you mentioned China before. So one of the yeah. the kind of big stories this week was that the uh, U.S. has announced, declared that China is no longer a currency manipulator. Um, apparently, I mean, apparently, just in time for the signing of the Phase One trade. Who does it all? I know. I know. Who could believe it? Huh? <laughs> that was that was that was damn handy. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> The nugget, the nugget that I loved contained in that was not that they've taken China uh, off its, its currency manipulator list, but they've added Switzerland to the watch list. And that is particularly poignant on this week of all weeks, because I know. I'm sure listeners will remember, because it's scarred in their memory, five years ago this week, the SMB pulled the plug on the uh, Euro-Swiss peg and nearly pulled the plug on the foreign exchange industry as a whole. Um, <laughs> You, you kind of think that maybe yeah, it's interesting they've done it now. Yeah, why did they not do it five years ago? Because then they may have stopped the SMB destroying the FX market single-handedly. It's um, yeah, I, I, it's, I, I'm actually surprised it's taken this long for them to get on there. The thing I thought was I still find surprising about that um, that report from the Treasury is they still insist on naming Germany and Switzerland as currency. Oh, sorry, Germany and Ireland. As, Swiss, as currency manipulators. I've got Switzerland on the brain now, haven't I? Yeah, they, they put their name in Germany and Ireland as currency manipulators. And they're like, it's called the euro. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they can maybe be able to do something about their, their economic policies. I get that. And I love the fact that someone's dictating to another sovereign nation what their economic policy should be. I always thought that was up to the electorate to do that in the election, the, the, policy, the party they like the most. Um, but yes, it's um, the fact that they, they named um, Germany and Ireland again. I'm going to, well, at some stage, you're going to work out that they can't really control the, um, the euro that much. I mean, obviously, Germany has a, quite an important role to play, but you know, the rest of it, maybe not. There was one other thing that I thought was really good on that day, actually. This happened on Wednesday, was it, I think? Tuesday or Wednesday, when the U.S. Treasury paper came out. Um, so that came out at 5 p.m. New York time. And yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the one of the I'm paraphrasing, but one of the lines in it basically said, um, "We are carefully tracking FX and macro policies of Thailand, as that country is close to the trigger point of currency manipulation." So that was at 5 p.m. Five hours later, there was a headline on Reuters 
Um, Thai Central Bank, worried about bark strength, ready to act if needed. <laughs> um, so, I noticed, uh, and I noticed, yeah, I noticed yesterday that Indonesia's somebody senior in Indonesia, it might have been their finance minister, said, you know, there's a real problem if the rupiah strengthens too quickly here. We might have to do something about it. So I'm saying, yeah, the US Treasury is talking, but I don't think Asia's listening. So well done to them. Yeah. Um, we'll continue to have this uh, this charade or you know, um, tea dance every quarter, no doubt. Um, just finally, I just wanted to share one thing with you. Um, Unfortunately, named companies, I maybe we'll call this little segment, I don't know. But So I got a press release this week, um, and obviously it's, you know, um, FX, you, you look at it, and it's like, yeah, there was a strong upward trend in global foreign exchange market in the last decade in 2019. After a dip in 2016, turnover went to 6.6 trillion, and it goes through a lot of days. And basically what it does, it's, it quotes the BIS survey in September. Um, and it even picks out things from the BIS reports afterwards, mentioning the Swiss franc currency shock, and and that obviously triggered the uh, the risk aversion and the regulatory environment or whatever, um, which is all BIS stuff. Um, then they go on to quote the BIS numbers in swaps, and then they quote the JP Morgan e trading survey, which I know you wrote about it. Is it was it February or March? It was. It was. It was. I think at the, around the end of Q1 last year. Yeah, yeah. So they and they quote that one. So basically, I've got a press release here, um, basically stating just just reprinting what the BIS and JP Morgan have already told me six months before. <laughs> what do you reckon? What do you reckon the name of the company that sent it to me is? Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, I don't know. Future Insights, Crystal Ball. <laughs> You're close. The company's called Psychic Ventures. Now, <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't think you need to be a psychic to state the bleeding obvious and quote from reports that have been out for three and nine months, respectively. But then that's just me. And I think we've already established in this podcast that I'm not only a, a geek, but I'm a cynic as well. Um, so on that note, um, I will make my own prediction um, because, you know, I'm psychic as well. And I will predict that we'll be back next week. Um, <laughs> Uh, thanks everyone for listening. I uh, hope you have a great week and we'll speak to you again then. Thanks a lot. <laughs>